Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR executive and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So we have another guest today, and I know we say this every time, but I'm super excited that my friend Mary Lynn McBride is joining us. I met Mary Lynn about seven years ago. We got connected through a mutual friend in the yoga community. And I will say the first thing that struck me about her within like 10 minutes of chatting is this incredible zest for life that she has. It comes through when you see her smile, which I know you won't be able to see her smile, but you will hear it in the way she talks. It comes through in the way she moves through life. It's just this really wonderful thing about her. It turned out that we had a ton of friends in common well beyond the yoga community. So it really was just a matter of time before we met. When I met her, she was in the very early stages of building her business to bring mindfulness into the workplace. And seven years later, she's going strong and doing all kinds of cool work in the mindfulness arena. I know she will talk a little bit about that. But on that note, I'm going to turn it over to Mary Lynn to tell us a little bit about her life and her journey. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Sherry. That is very generous of you. <laughs> um, I um, Gosh, when you said, you know, sort of a maybe a bird's eye view to start, mm -hmm. I might want to just start by saying that I, I grew up in New Jersey. In my part of New Jersey, when we talked about the city, we were talking about Philadelphia, <laughs> not New York. So I'm from South Jersey, about 60 miles from the Jersey Shore. And uh, that was a place that I spent a lot of time as a child. I grew up, uh, my family was um, Catholic, my dad Irish Catholic, my mom Italian Catholic. And I just mentioned that and because it was really uh, formative for me growing up, you know, pretty traditional family and uh, Catholic school. And we spent a lot of time with my Italian grandparents and they were Italian American, but um, lived in a totally Italian enclave right outside of Philadelphia. So it was really, uh, it was really interesting. I loved that sense of that, um, you know, hyphenated American experience and just learning so much about the traditions and the culture and the language as I was growing up. And I felt like it was important to mention it because then when I was 17, I got to live in Italy for a year. Mm. And so I learned to speak Italian and just really bonded with that culture. And then way later in my life, revisited, but we'll get to that in, mm -hmm. <laughs> in the future. But it, it was a, a jumping off point for me. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so how did you get from South Jersey to Italy and then to land in Raleigh, North Carolina? Well, that took about 28 years, <laughs> okay. more than that, more, more than 30 years. But I, I, I went to college, I majored in history. And then at the uh, point that I had to graduate and do something with that, I went to the career planning office and met with the counselor. And she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't want to leave college. You know, I mean, <laughs> I like everything about this. This is way fun. I could spend my whole life here. And she said, you know what? You can. She said, um, there's a degree that you can pursue. It's called college student personnel, it's sort of a, in the school of education, higher education administration. And you could basically be a person that works in the dean of students office. And, you know, there were lots of different sort of places you might go residence life or career planning and placement, et cetera. And I said, oh, wow, that's amazing. So I went to graduate school. I I did that. 
And that's sort of where that the uh, the experience abroad came into play because what I wound up doing was working with international students. Mm. And so I started, um, my first job was as a foreign student advisor. And I met my, uh, my person who was later become my husband in, in graduate school. And then we got married when I, um, I had a job at the University of Pennsylvania as a foreign student advisor. And um, that I think is my, the most fun job I ever had in my life. <laughs> and it was very early on in my late 20s. So uh, from there, uh, after I got married, my husband, uh, we were both in the same field doing similar work. He was in career planning and placement. After about a year or so in Philadelphia, he decided that he wanted to look for another position and we wound up at the University of Virginia. And then that didn't, uh, that didn't go so well for me professionally, because uh, we, we moved for his opportunity. Mm. And when we got there, UVA at the time, this was, gosh, in the late 80s, you know, they were a flagship institution for, for Virginia, but they didn't really have an international sort of mission at, at that point. I'm sure things are different now, but I couldn't get a, a similar job to the one that I had. And the state was going through some financial problems, and they were cutting back on um, support to the state institutions. So the only jobs available were in fundraising. So I applied for a job in fundraising and was lucky enough to be able to talk my way into that somehow. And that started me on a whole different trajectory, a 20-year career really in fundraising. Fantastic. And did that eventually lead you down to Raleigh then? Or how did... Well, then it was Roanoke when he switched jobs to uh, go to Virginia Tech. And then we moved from Roanoke to Blacksburg and then from there to Connecticut (laughs) and then from there to Raleigh. So a super straight route. (laughs) Super straight route. Perfectly linear. (laughs) Right. A little bit of a winding road, kind of like our perfectly imperfect journeys, right? (laughs) You just never know how you're going to land where you land. That's right. Exactly. And something that happened in in one of those moves, I started doing fundraising in community nonprofits. Mm. And then sort of that's what I did as of about 1993 and forward until I stopped completely uh, about 10 years ago. Yeah. Would love to hear a little bit more about how you found your way from fundraising into building a business around mindfulness and meditation. Well, I had in one of the moves that we we made, I kind of I felt when I found myself in Connecticut, I was uh, very sad. I mean, that's probably the best word to yeah. use. I was sad. I was lonely. I, I, we had two children at the time, but I, I landed there as we, as I did after every move, I landed without a job, mm. you know, and I, and I liked to work and I always did wind up finding something where I, I worked part-time, but I was sitting outside of a music school where my son was having a music lesson and I just was miserable. I looked mm. across the street, there was a yoga studio and I thought, what the heck? Couldn't, couldn't hurt. Couldn't hurt. Couldn't be any worse. Maybe right. I'll meet some people. Or right. I'll make some friends. Yeah. So I just went by, looked at the schedule, showed up, and the rest is history, really. I mean, I fell in love with uh, yoga practice mm. and eventually trained to become a teacher in that exact studio that was uh, uh, that person who owned the studio mentored me. And, and, and eventually I I officially, you know, went to a yoga program and, and, uh, and became a a certified teacher. So after my oldest son graduated from college, I, I just started thinking about what was next for me. And I thought I wanted to do something more intentional around yoga. And so I left fundraising with the intention of doing that, but I also wound up getting divorced and that was not 
part of my plan. <laughs> I don't really want to say a lot about that because I want to sort of preserve sure. some privacy for the other people involved. But I, it was the kind of divorce rather than sort of that slow demise. It was sort of the thing that comes out of left field. Mm. So, you know, one day I'm sort of planning my future as a married person. And the next day I was getting divorced. Wow. So it was really, um, Oh gosh, it took it took a while to kind of figure out how I was going to move forward. But I knew I knew I had to do something that was uh, more uh, maybe also helped me recover, heal, kind of go forward, grow. I guess, and that's the way I saw it. So I really became much more intentional about the yoga practice, and then eventually took a mindfulness based stress reduction class at Duke in the integrative medicine uh, program. Oh gosh, it was life changing for me. I finished that course. It was an eight week course, and at the very end of it, I left for a silent meditation retreat. Wow. Yeah. And that was, I thought, this is what I want to do. And um, over the next five years, started, you know, training very hard and getting advice and coaching from Sherry on building a business around that. And so that's how that unfolded. That's fantastic. You know, it's it's so interesting to think about what year was it that you were sitting in front of that yoga studio while your son was having his music lesson? More or less. 2000. I know. 2000. It's so interesting to think about how this very random moment, like Anne and I love to talk about these sliding door moments, you know, just these these moments that you making that choice to stand up and go peek in the window of that yoga studio or peek in the door of that yoga studio, how this very random moment 21 years ago ended up changing your life, mm-hmm. right? It's absolutely true. And, you know, I'll tell you just frankly, every couple of years, I send a note to that yoga teacher Hmm. because I I know she changed the trajectory of my life. I'm very clear on that. And I, I thank her for that. But I also love the fact that it was actually you that walked across the street, right? So she facilitated, but I really think it was you taking that walk across Mm -hmm. the street, even as you were sad, even as you were feeling lonely and feeling maybe a little bit lost that it was you that kind of picked yourself up and even thought to walk across the street and sort of check it out. So that's beautiful. You know, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit also about how yoga and mindfulness and when you did the program at Duke and you made the comment, it changed your life. If you could talk a little bit about how that was able to support you in your healing process and how that has supported you just in other parts of your life, good and right in the good times and the not so good times. I think the first thing that I would say, and I remember this really clearly, is that in the very first class in the MBSR curriculum, they take you through a meditation and they call it the well meditation. They sort of keep asking you this question, what brought you here? What brought you here? What brought you here? And it's, you know, it's, it's not quite that, not quite that <laughs> staccato, annoying, right? I mean, but, you know, it's just, this, you know, keep, keep like, okay, you, you know, you have your quick answer and then what's your next answer and what's your next answer. And then there were about 25 people in my class. And when it was over, they went around the room and they just asked, what brought you here? And I listened as each person said, what brought them there? And I, had this overwhelming sense of, oh my gosh, the common humanity of the things that people were going Mm. through. Nobody had exactly my story, but everybody had 
a reason that they were there and it was painful. And I just felt this sense of, I earned my spot in this room. Mm. That That's what I thought. I earned my spot. And what I'm going through is not unique. The story might be unique, but it's not unique. That's right. And it was that just that moment was the beginning of a of a healing because it was sort of a widening of the lens and getting out of that like ooh me 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 victim 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 you know <laughs> just and just being a little bit more just open and and feeling that connection with other people that's right right but it's also i mean you're making such an important point here about you know often we walk around trying to put on some sort of show or you know, uh, present ourselves in a certain way to the world. We just did an, an episode on authenticity recently, and we talk about that a little bit. And yet all of us have stuff in our lives. It's sort of just the definition of being human, right? Stuff's going to happen. And right. so I love the fact that you had this aha, like, ah, oh, okay, my story is unique, but my situation is not, right? Exactly. And so I love that meditation and mindfulness was a was a way in for you to, to start some of that healing. And since we were sort of in agreement that all of us have something, I'm wondering if there's anything you could share with us, maybe do like a brief meditation or, or some sort of exercise to help all of us that are listening sort of deal with whatever it is that we're dealing with. Sure. That'd be great. Sure. All right. So perhaps just find a little posture for, me for, for meditation. So I'd suggest that you perhaps put, you know, something down if you have it in your hand and Uncross your legs and feel the soles of your feet on the floor and your hands on your lap. And then bring a little attention to your spine. So lifting the spine right out of the, out of the seat, we're all, we're all sitting in chairs. So just lifting up and then noticing as you lift through the spine, if the shoulders are coming, with toward the ears and see if you can relax the shoulders, broadening across the chest, softening your throat, softening around your jaw, your eyes. And softening the belly. And into that nice soft belly, feel the breath moving in and creating that movement, that expansion. And on the exhale, also a movement in the body, a gentle contracting through the abdomen and take a few breaths like this. Just inhale, feeling the sensation of breath moving into the body and exhale, a gentle contraction. And noticing that it's also quite likely that your mind has wandered a little bit, maybe away from the breath toward the next part of our conversation or something that happened later today. And that is perfectly normal and natural. So simply redirect your attention back to the breath, back to this moment, 
and feeling the sensation of breath moving in and moving out. And on the next inhalation, just allow that inhalation to be nice and full. And the exhalation equally so, full and complete. And when you're ready, just allowing some gentle movement to come to the body, whatever just comes up sort of spontaneously, naturally, say organically. And when you're ready, redirecting back to one another. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah, it was probably no more than a minute or two, right? So I'm curious about that. I mean, when I think about meditation, sometimes I think, oh, well, I don't have time. I really need to you know, schedule 20 or 30 minutes and make sure I have time to sit down. So I'm, I'm just curious what you think about this kind of minute or two that we just took versus really trying to schedule it and get it in. Is it just as impactful or should I be really trying to schedule a significant amount of time to deepen my meditation practice? I think the, the best advice is to do what it is that you can regularly do, mm. right? So if you can set, you know, even like a little alarm or what I love to, to cue is if there's something that you do during your day, like, you know, you, 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 take, a, you take an afternoon coffee break or tea break and you go and you, you're going to fill the kettle with water, that it might be that cue that this is where I'm going to, to take a moment mm. and just attach back to the reality of what's happening in this present moment without the mind chatter, without the rushing on to what's next, but just experiencing the body and the breath in the moment. And that in and of itself starts to ratchet down the nervous system, mm. right? It's, it's sort of a, a, a self-directed. And what we did was very brief, as, as, you, as you mentioned. And, and I would call it a, just a basic attention on the breath meditation. But it's the way to sort of take the monkey mind and sort of hand it a banana for a minute <laughs> and just say, just quiet down you know, and feel the body. Because the body's always in the present moment. Right. right. The body's not living in the past and is not in the future. It's in the moment. And so that brief sort of focusing on the feet, on the on the spine, on the chest, on the and then also when you do that focus, sometimes you notice, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize I would my jaw was so tight, my shoulders were so tight. And you walk around like that. You know? And so it's that little interruption to just pause and just settle it down. So that was a long way of saying, you know, maybe both and, and, yeah. you know, if you got the time or the motivation, you know, to just, to just do these little bites, that's fine. You know, if you can spend a little bit of extra time, you would, derive, you know, we've heard so many, much about the benefits of mindfulness, you know, for stress reduction and all of, all of the different things, you know, headaches, a variety of, of conditions. And that takes a little bit more time and yeah. intention, but, you know, one, one little bite at a time. That's awesome. And I would love for you to speak a little bit more about what are the benefits? Why should we be doing, have a, developing a, a mindfulness or meditation practice? So, 
you know, there's so much research now. It's it's fascinating. In I think in the 80s, there's a there's a great chart online. Uh, your you know your listeners can access it. It's about the peer reviewed studies around mindfulness. Mm. And if you look in like the early in the 80s, there were like two or three, <laughs> and the line just goes like a you know a hockey stick. There are so many studies that are being done. One that I, I like to talk about is one that was done at Harvard. The takeaway was a, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Mm. And basically what they did was they had their cohort in the study and they um, gave them all smartphones and they pinged them at random times. And they said, ask them three questions. What are you doing right now? Is your mind actually engaged in what it is that you're doing? And what is your mood like? What kind of a mood state? So just quick, you know, responses. And what they found was that 47% of the time, people reported that their mind was not engaged in the activity that they were physically doing, or they were trying to do, say, reading even. And that correlated to a low mood state. So just in the sense of bringing sort of a sense of well-being to our lives, you know, mindfulness, being able to direct and sustain your own attention at will Mm. is good for your mental health. (laughs) And then there are the things that are all of the stress-related conditions that we have, like migraine headaches, stomach upset, IBS, you know, anxiety, Um, you know, that living in the past and living in the future, you know, is taxing. So the degree that we could bring ourselves back to what is happening right now can create more of a sense of ease and a capacity to respond skillfully Mm -hmm. rather than just that sort of reacting out of conditioning or habit, you know? And so uh, it creates that space a little bit between, um, uh, you know, Victor Frankl said between stimulus and response, there is a space. No, and in that space lies our freedom. Mm. No, and so it's that space of making it a little bigger, you know, than just that quick, you know, incident response. Well, it is always to me so amazing how even a five-second pause, right, or a five to ten-second breath, three deep breaths. Yeah, it's it's always amazing to me how it ends up feeling like the equivalent of a. Th- 30 minute pause in terms of being able to respond differently. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's so powerful. And to just tag on to Anne's comment about how often we think, or our listeners may have thought that, oh, I'd love to have a practice like that, but I just don't have time that the benefits come from really these nano, right. These nano moments. It's really extraordinary. So one of the things I love, Marilyn, about how you talk about your mind wandering is I've heard you on multiple occasions use the phrase that, of course, you're going to have thoughts coming into your head. This is what our brains do. They, they're thought production machines. <laughs> and I love that way of normalizing isn't the right word, but I love that way of thinking about it that, yeah, we're not controlling what pops into our mind. Like that's not the goal. And I think that's another misconception a lot of people have is, oh, I'm not very good at meditating. I keep having thoughts pop into my mind. Right. I've taken to saying that we excrete thoughts, like the brain, (laughs) (laughs) like the pancreas excretes insulin, you know, I mean, it's just like, and then we believe them. 
You know, right. we believe right. like all of these random things that just, you know, pop up, whether, you know, we're, we're in judgment or self-criticism or, you know, so many things that, that, you know, that pause is like a superpower. Yeah. Right. To be able to pause and intentionally respond. Right. So just to be really clear with everybody who's listening, if you are trying to meditate and you are feeling like you are doing it wrong because your mind is still very busy, that's just what your mind does, right? You're not doing it wrong at all. No. And it just means you're just like everybody else. Exactly. That's the bad, the good news and the bad news is you're just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. (laughs) Yeah. But here's the other good news. It's a skill. And skills can be trained and developed. It's just a matter of doing it. Yeah. It's just like if you're going to play a musical instrument, the first time you pick it up, it feels weird. You can't do it, you know, and then all of a sudden, or driving stick shift. And then all of a sudden, you can't remember when you didn't know how to do that. Right. You know? right. Because it's, right. it's just it's just there, right. a language, a foreign language. Well, just like driving a stick shift or learning a foreign language, there, there would be a place to start. Where could somebody start? Are there any tools or, or places where people could learn a little bit more so that they would be able to develop their own practice. Sure. There's so much available now. There are various apps. Insight Timer is one I that, that I one. happen to like a yeah. lot. Oh yeah, yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah. Headspace is another very mm-hmm. popular one. Calm. Mm-hmm. There are lots of free resources online. You know, of course I teach classes. Um, for me personally, that's the way that I learned. And I find it, you know, just being the kind of person who likes to be in that kind of group setting with other people, the accountability, the able be able to talk to a teacher, you know, that's the way I pursued it. And those kinds of things are available as well online. Hopefully they're going to be in person soon. I'm, I'm dearly hoping that's going to be the case because I so enjoy teaching in person and uh, I'm, I'm eager to do that again. Right. Well, I'm just going to put in a plug for if you are local in Raleigh, Maryland's really, really great at teaching it. And here's my exhibit A of that is my husband, Warren, took a, I can't remember if it was a six or an eight week meditation class so with Mary So we Lynn. haven't talked about Warren a lot uh, on the podcast yet, but <laughs> can I just share with our listeners, this is a shock to me that Warren would take a meditation <laughs> class. I won't exactly. say much more because uh, Warren's one of my favorite people, but it is shocking. That's exactly right. And that's why I'm saying this is exhibit A as to how good Mary Lynn is at this <laughs> because he did not drop out out of the after the first class or the second class or the third class. And then I finally realized, oh my gosh, he's, he's stick really sticking with this. Cool. And so that is about as high a praise as I could imagine giving somebody. That's that's great. That's so nice to know because he was always very engaged. I would have never thought that. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, We will definitely put your uh, website into the show notes so people know how to find you. Thank you. Right. I want to take us down a slightly different path, which is a little bit of me trying to make a clever segue, which is you had a big adventure a couple of years ago on walking the Camino in Spain. As you were talking about our bodies are in the present, but it's our minds that are rushing around. It just struck me that that had to have really come into play on taking on that kind of adventure. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about just what the deal is with walking the Camino? And then what were some of the big takeaways or big moments of insight or inspiration that you had from that experience? Because I know it was a really big deal. 
Yeah, it was. It was really the trip of a lifetime, Mm. I think, for me. It's a trek across northern Spain. If you start at the beginning of what most people refer to as the Camino, is this one trail that's the Camino Francis. It goes from southern France. You drop down into Spain through Pamplona, and then you walk east to west to the coast of Spain. Well, you don't have to get all the way to the coast. The end of it is the is the city of Santiago de Compostela. There's a big cathedral there, the Cathedral of St. James, and people have been walking this trail since the 11th century. Mm. So it has, oh my gosh, it's so steeped in history and the Spanish culture, Catholicism, um, although there are so many people who, uh, who walk this for all kinds of different reasons. And I saw a movie about it in 2012 with Martin Sheen, and it was called The Way. And it was basically about a man who has a tragedy and winds up walking the Camino. And I said, oh my gosh, I definitely want to do that sometime. And it went right on my bucket list. But I was married at the time. I, I, I couldn't imagine that I would have ever, ever done it. And then I, and when anybody would ever say to me, what's on your bucket list, I would say walking the Camino. And then one day I woke up and said, when is this ever going to get easier? <laughs> I'm 60. <laughs> so anyway, I made plans to do it and uh, wound up walking for about three weeks. So I didn't start in France. I started somewhere in Spain and walked about 250 miles over wow. a three-week period. It was fascinating. I, I went by myself and it was, I found out... Um, So this is very, maybe Sherry, you wouldn't know this. This is so out of character for me in that I averaged about 12 miles a day. And prior to that, I never walked 12 miles in my life. Friends here in Raleigh who knew were actually worried. I found out later they were talking to each other saying, I don't think she can do it. She lost it. (laughs) Maybe that's not fair. They said they didn't think I could do it, but they were worried. They were worried. about. They had a backup rescue mission ready to go at a moment's notice. Yes, yes, absolutely true. Yeah. But no, people were super supportive, but I think they were waiting. Anyway, yeah. So it was, um, it was, it did turn out to be meditative. And it was so interesting that you would ask the question that way, because I did notice like in the very beginning, my mind was so busy. Everything I saw had a story to it. You know, I was like, oh, I need to remember to tell Kelly about that amazing meal that I had. And, oh, Linda would think that this cathedral is so amazing. And, you know, I wonder what my kid, you know, what the kids are doing. And I was, I mean, it was just a constant a monologue in my head as I walked along. And, uh, and as days and days and days went by, it quieted down. Mm you know, so much so that it was sad to leave. I felt really reluctant to come home and to come back into, you know, the busyness of life because there all I did every day, all day was walk and feed myself and um, wash my clothes out in the sink. I mean, that was all, (laughs) that's all I did, you know, every single day and meet wonderful people, incredible people along the way. Yeah. Were there ways in which having done that changed you? Yes, in in many ways. Number one, I I think it was a big uh, confidence boosting kind of thing. You know, as you said, there was fear involved in it, you know, traveling by myself, um, walking like that. Never had been to Spain before. I don't speak Spanish. 
but hey, people have been doing this for a long, long time. And I figured I could, you know, get common humanity kind of thing. I should be able to do this too. And so I think that that I came home with a, a lot more confidence and in, in I can do hard things. You know, I had started saying after my divorce, I had had a couple experiences where I found myself saying, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm excited and terrified. Mm. I'm excited and terrified. And it all of a sudden dawned on me that that space where you're excited and terrified is a real auspicious kind of space. Yeah. And that, you know, to step forward into that is what I needed to do more of, you know? And so I, I felt like the Camino was that kind of thing that I was excited and terrified. A lot of people go on the Camino for a, for a reason, you know, is this can be a spiritual thing. A person that I met on the Camino who I talk to you about in a minute was there as you know sort of as a part of a grief process you know and I didn't because I had seen that movie and I was like oh it's a really cool thing to do I really want to do it I was like you know but I have to have a reason (laughs) a good reason and I didn't know what it was you know and I think I said okay I'm gonna know when I get there I'm gonna figure it out when I get there and and I did. And I, I, early on, I realized, you know what, this is about for me, this is about forgiveness. Mm. You know, this is about, you know, forgiving myself for a lot of, uh, you know, sort of the, the accumulated things of life, you know, that I, and forgiving my, my, my ex-spouse. You yeah. Know? Um, and I knew I wasn't mad anymore. I wasn't angry. I wasn't carrying that around because I had figured that out already. But I knew, you know, kind of deep down. Uh, that that there was still that that wall, you know, that there was the, a lack of forgiveness, and so I made that my intention. Mm. It's like every town I I stepped into, you know. Of course, there was a a church, and I would just step in, and I just had a little mantra prayer, however you would say it. I you know I want that. I want that grace. I want forgiveness, and it just I never felt different. It just, I did it every, every day. And really at the end, I had a moment of catharsis. And the funny thing was, it didn't feel like, oh, there's forgiveness. It was more like, what are you talking about forgiveness? That's ridiculous. There is nothing but gratitude here. Look where I am standing. This is a miracle. You know, this is nothing but grace and it's all good. Yeah. You know, which I couldn't have invented in my head. Right. Know? But what a beautiful yeah. shift. I mean, that's gorgeous. It really was a shift. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have totally have goose, goosebumps. That is wow. 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 So Mary Lynn, you have lived quite a life and, you know, lived all over at least the East part of the, the U.S. and have had a couple different careers and some of these life-changing moments, but I'm really thinking about that Catholic school girl with the Italian family when you were little. And I'm just so curious, is there, is there any advice or would you whisper anything in her ear if you could going back to those days, hanging out with your family and that kind of bridging the Italian American experience? Oh gosh. Yes. I think what, you know, in all the loveliness of that, I was raised with a dutifulness. Mm. No, I was the oldest of uh, four children mm-hmm. and um, I had a lot of responsibility early on in my life. And, and I think I sort of took on a role like that of maybe sort of like a facilitator and the advice I would whisper in my ear, at first I would say something really nice, like, honey, sweetie, 
<laughs> Love it. Don't be the best supporting actress in your own life. Oh, wow. It's yours. You didn't come here just to facilitate things for other people. You know, you've got some things to do and remember that. Beautiful. That is amazing advice. I'm just picturing you as just this wee little, just wee little girl. And I'm picturing you. So Mary Lynn texted me a picture this morning of her, herself and her siblings as really little kids at their grandparents' table. And so I have this very clear picture in my mind of you as a little girl. And what, what a gift that advice would be, have been. And what a gift it is that you now know that for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny, Sherry, I said that when I laugh about that picture is there's a big bowl of spaghetti and meatballs in the middle of that table. (laughs) And it's big. And I thought, surely my memory as a child is it wasn't that big. It was big. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is hilarious. Well, it has been such a pleasure to have you with us today. Um, There is a quote on Mary Lynn's website, and we will include her website and some other things in the show notes. But there's a quote on her website from John Kabat-Zinn, who is the uh, person who created mindfulness-based stress reduction meditation. And the quote is, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And I think that's just such a beautiful summation of the choices we have on how we navigate what goes on inside our heads and how we move ourselves through life. One of the things we'll be including in the show notes is Marilyn is leading a mindfulness retreat at the Shambhala Mountain Center in Colorado. We'll have her website links. And on that note, thank you so much for listening. That wraps up our episode for today. And please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.